Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and personalities to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle shows available anywhere that brings you tools previously only available to elite high performers. We may not have all the answers, but we do have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great content that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you like what you hear on the show, come hang out with us on the blog. We really get in-depth on some of these topics, and you can engage with the AOC team there as well. And if you're new to the show and you want to find out more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, you can go to the website. We'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, dating, attraction, persuasion, networking, negotiation, which is what this episode is about relationship management, public speaking, and a whole lot more. And we've got our live programs running every single week in Los Angeles, California. In fact, guys from all over the world are, are here pretty much every week. So no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. And we're sold out six months in advance. So if it's in the back of your head, get in touch ASAP. Call us, email us, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get info now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with Aldana Luis Fernandez. She is a 23-year military veteran and then spent, what, seven plus years working with private corporations as well. So 30 plus years of leadership, contract management, negotiation experience, negotiating hundreds of millions of dollars in equipment. And she's going to teach us a little bit about, or a lot about negotiation today. We're going to talk about relationship building and confidence in the context of negotiation, how to use leverage to your advantage, questions to test the other side to make sure that you can get that leverage in the first place. And of course, what to do when you run into certain pitfalls of negotiation so you can get the best win for yourself. Oh, and I've got producer Jason here this week to continually ask the questions that I don't think of in the moment. So enjoy this one with Eldana Luis Fernandez. Tell us what you do in one sentence. I show people how to think like a negotiator, uh, basically creating win-win results and understanding the pitfalls to avoid in negotiation in every area of their lives. Okay, perfect. And how did you learn these skills? I learned them kind of twofold, 23 years in the Air Force as a contracts manager. Uh, my title was contract specialist. 
And then uh, once I retired from the military, I went to work for some defense contractors as a contracts negotiator, kind of on the other side of the table. So I have a well-rounded breadth of experience in contracts and negotiation. Great. And now, why is this stuff so important? Because obviously, we've talked about negotiation before. People know you've got to be able to hold your own. But is really, how often do you negotiate in your life? And can't we just get some quick simple tricks off Google? Why do we, what sort of skills do we really need to build? Or maybe a better question is, are the skills that most people build when they look to get better at negotiating actually the right skills? Well, we negotiate every day of our lives. I always say whether it's a multi-million dollar deal, how to get your kids to do their homework or where to meet for dinner, it's all negotiation. So uh, oftentimes we view negotiation as this big daunting thing and it's a kind of a conflict, maybe the old school bully negotiation or the big boardroom table. But when you think about you're going to agree to a lunch meeting or something at work or something in your business, all the discussions you have are basically negotiations. And to know how to communicate effectively using the right strategies to enable that to come to a win-win result where both sides win, those are skills that you can learn. Uh, that's interesting, because I, I think you're right. Most people think negotiation, put on a suit, you meet at a boardroom, your people come in with briefcases, their people come in with briefcases, dot, 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 a deal is made, but it's all sort of like ninja reading their eyebrows tactics as opposed to, oh yeah, well, when I talk about this with my husband, this happens, or when my kids want this and I have to tell them that, it's that, but these are negotiations. This is what a real negotiation looks like. Yeah, it's all negotiation. I mean, that, the big boardroom thing actually does happen. It is one side of negotiation. But one of the things my kids, like my son always wanted to stay out past curfew. So he was negotiating with me because I'd have to go pick him up because he couldn't be out on the streets. And so he'd be negotiating the time with me. That's a discussion and negotiation. And the end result is an agreement. That's all negotiation is. It's basically a technical term for discussions and conversations to reach an agreement. Right. Excellent. Okay. And what do you do now? You teach civilians these skills now? I teach everybody these skills. I teach entrepreneurs. I teach corporate people. I teach military people. Uh, they're great skills for, I really have a heart to help veterans since I am one. It's great skills to use in negotiating a salary or doing the job interview or negotiating a contract or that sale with that person or that group that you're wanting to get as a client, it, it applies in all areas. So I train and speak and teach uh, multiple different levels of people how to think like a negotiator. Excellent. And so what's the most rewarding, just out of curiosity? Uh, the most rewarding is, well, I do a three-day training and the most rewarding is uh, even if I'm just doing an hour talk and I see somebody grasp the concept and then they go out and they get a better deal for themselves and they, they hear about it. That's what's rewarding for me is to teach these people skills so they can actually improve the results in their life. So when you're dealing with civilians versus military, is there any difference between the negotiation tactics that a civilian would use versus a military personnel? Well, civilians have a little more leeway than military do. When I was in the government contracting arena, we had a lot more constraints that we had to operate within because of the federal acquisition regulation, which is the governing, governing reg for government contracting. So we were kind of constrained as to how far we could go with certain things and, of course, budget constraints and things like that. But the tactics work just the same. I mean, the things I learned in the military, I use 
These are strategies that I developed while negotiating both in the military and in the civilian sector, and they work across the board because people are people. Excellent. So geography, occupation, et cetera, it doesn't really matter because the principles of persuasion or negotiation or whatever other skill set we're looking at are based on human thought patterns, human thought processes, and human psychology, not nothing else. So, of course, we all have those in common. Well, and that's true, but geography does matter in a sense that if you're negotiating with somebody from a different culture, you have to understand about doing business in that culture. Uh, I was deployed to the Middle East after 9-11, and I spent four months over there negotiating and purchasing things for the base, and their way of doing business is a lot different. I was stationed in England for four years. I did business in Germany, Spain, Tunisia, all kinds of different places, and, and the way they do business is a lot different, especially me as a woman, I had to take those factors into account. But uh, like, for instance, the Middle East is more about relationship building. If you walked in and said, hey, I want to buy this, this and this, give it to me, let me go. They get highly offended. They want you to sit down, have some tea, have something to eat. That's all part of how they do business. And you have to understand that when you're going and dealing with a different culture. Interesting. So how was it different for you as a woman? I feel like my stereotype of the Middle East is you walk in there and they're like, I'm not going to talk to her, but I'll talk to the guy. I don't know. Well, I I was in uh, Qatar, as we called it, or Qatar, mm -hmm. and they were maybe a little more progressive. So, I mean, I dealt with a couple of sheikhs and uh, I dealt with all types of different cultures from different countries. And because I had the power of the pen, they were quite happy to do business with me because I had my little pad of purchase orders and a guy with a bag of cash and my list and I'd go place to place. And I knew because we'd been trained on how to properly do business in those countries. And they were quite receptive to me. Maybe I believe some people uh, in the military, women in the military that went into other Middle Eastern countries had to wear the covering. But in uh, where I was, I didn't have to. So they were quite receptive to me. And it was a great experience because I met so many different people from so many different cultures. Yeah. Did you find that doing business in those different cultures showed you actually the underlying commonalities? Because I find the more that I travel, the more I find that people are very, very similar. And you start to sort of iron things. It's like language learning. You start to iron out, oh, okay, this type of thing is universal to human communication. This other thing is cultural. And then you can sort of digest, almost distill those into fundamentals that you can use back in your home country. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I always talk about is one of the most common mistakes people make, especially in the U.S., is not building relationships first. And I always use the example of my time in the Middle East. It's not about the quantity of the contacts. It's about the quality and, and really making that connection and finding maybe that affinity um, there's that saying that goes, people who are like each other, like each other. And if you can really connect and find out what you have in common, it'll build that know, like, and trust factor faster. And like we would spend 45 minutes to an hour talking in the Middle East before they would even ask me for my list. And then they'd ask me for my list, hand it to their guy, and we'd keep talking. And the price was based on that relationship and that trust factor. Interesting. That's kind of funny. So it's, it's basically a very blatant version of if I like you, it's cheaper. Pretty much, pretty much. That's kind of how it worked. Excellent. So what tips do you have and what advice do you have for people who are wanting to learn this skill set? Because again, you know, the core of what we teach at The Art of Charm is about relationship development, relationship building, but it's not necessarily a very 
Western thing. In fact, a lot of times people look down on that. We've all heard like, ah, oh, well, you know, it's all about who you know these days. And people say it with a little bit of stank on it. And what you're saying is actually, this is how it is around not only most of the world, but this is how it, it actually operates in the US, whether or not we wanna put a little shellacking of everybody's equal and everybody's treated fairly and a business is business, the little shellacking, the little the veneer we might put on it, that's what I'm looking for, it doesn't really matter. We still do business with people that we know and like. Yeah, definitely, that, there's a lot of truth to that. And you know, we always wanna go quick, quick, quick and get everything going. We're in this microwave society in the US where, oh, we wanna get done now, we wanna get done in a hurry, we want everything, because we're kinda trained that way. We look at technology and look at how fast things are moving and well, we want our business to move that fast too. But if you take the time to build the relationship, I have relationships that I've built with people maybe a year ago, and they're just coming back around to me because I've continued to build that relationship with them. They're like, you know, you came to mind because we have this connection, this relationship, you'd be perfect for this. And sometimes it doesn't happen so quick. You have to build those relationships and build that trust factor. And it does. It takes some time and people don't want to take the time. And I'm sure you've been to a networking event where people are running around harvesting business cards and and then you get on a bunch of people's lists and that you don't even know if they're your right fit client. Right. Yeah. And it's something we've always talked about. It's build your well before you're thirsty. Yeah. Dig right, the well before you're exactly. thirsty. Yeah. It's the relationship building thing, I think, is the most important thing in any negotiation. Now, sometimes you have to just jump right into something when you're in a certain situation. But if you're going for the long term, especially if it's somebody you want to do business with, you want to make sure that you have a good connection and that you have the same kind of values and thought processes before you jump in and do business with them. What do we need to know or what do we need to work on and if, if we're going to build those relationships and we're going to get good at negotiating? Building relationships is just actually going out and doing it. But I always say the number one thing you need to be a good negotiator is confidence, a level of confidence in your negotiating skills. And oftentimes people they hesitate to negotiate because, oh, this is a conflict or I don't know how to do this. But unfortunately, the only way you're going to get good at it is to actually do it. And I always uh, recommend people go and uh, hit a yard sale to train their negotiation skills. Okay. Yeah, that's actually great advice because out here in, in Los Angeles, every weekend we're out at the yard sales and everybody loves to negotiate. And you have to totally have that skill because they don't even talk to you if you just want to offer what's on the table. Yeah, because nobody ever expects to get the price that they're asking for a yard sale. They're expecting you to come and haggle with them. That's just part of it. And really, if you feel hesitation towards it, like I always say, it's not a light switch kind of thing. You can't flip a light switch and be a great negotiator. You have to actually do it to get good at it. And so, yeah, then the yard sale idea is great because the stakes are super low. Because even if you, quote unquote, lose that negotiation, you're probably out pocket change. And if you win, you start to get the hang of the skill set and start to be able to read where people are at, including yourself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I created a little one of the training things I do is I actually have a yard sale that I do in my training where people are actually negotiating for yard sale junk. I mean, even swap meets, swap meets are another great place. Or if you're buying something off of Craigslist or someplace like that, where you're going to go buy a piece of furniture or buy a car from somebody, you need to hone these skills. And like you were saying, doing the yard sale thing is a 
a low stakes kind of game where if you mess up, you kind of go away and you think, well, how could I have done that better? Let me go to another place and give it another go. You just keep doing it till you get good at it. And how do you use body language and nonverbal communication in negotiation? If you get good at kind of reading people, like you present as a maybe an offer to somebody and see how they react. And if they kind of get tense or if their eyebrow raises or if they take a breath or whatever, you, you can read what the other person, oh, gosh, maybe that's a little bit high or they're not liking that or whatever. Same thing with your body language. You don't want to show if it's not a good deal and you feel uncomfortable with it. You don't want to show that because if somebody else is good at reading body language, they'll pick it up uh, pretty quick. But you can kind of see where somebody is just based on how they are once you've kind of presented your offer. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. 
Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now back to Aldana Luis Fernandez. Now, we, we talk a lot about building confidence and relationship development at The Art of Charm. We, I mean, we spend hundreds of hours literally discussing the nuances of that. So if people are looking for that information and this is the first time you've heard the show, definitely check out the starter kit at theartofcharm.com and go and look at some of the articles on that, go to the toolbox, et cetera. But what do you do, Aldana, to basically to get pre- to prepare, to get ready for an upcoming negotiation, discussion, interview, or, or disagreement of some kind? Well, one of the strategies is to prepare in advance. And you think about, okay, this is what I'm maybe thinking about, powerful questions to ask, things like that. But I work with my clients. I actually have a client who's coming up on a negotiation, and we're going to do a mock negotiation where somebody else is going to play the part of the person he's going to be negotiating with and do a mock negotiation, even for a job interview. If you're going for a job interview, do a mock interview. Do it before you actually walk into the actual interview or the actual negotiation because you've already felt it kind of physically in your body. And once you feel that, you get a little more comfortable with it. When you go in for the real thing, you've already kind of had an experience of what it's going to feel like. So it prepares you to be more confident when you walk into the real negotiation. How do we set that up without getting softballed by like, like, I feel like if I ask my friends, hey, put me through a mock interview or a mock negotiation, they're just going to be, I remember my mock interviews in law school were like, why do you want to work here? Um, I just really like the company and I think the mission's interesting and you know, I'm really interested in the work. And they're like, oh, you did a great job. And I'm like, that's not how a real interview goes. A real interview, especially a real negotiation, they're going to be a lot tougher on you. They're going to throw curveballs. They're going to be better researched. I mean, how do we sort of make up for that? Yeah, you want to make sure that you have somebody that's going to give you genuine feedback. As a speaker, I, I'm a member of a Toastmasters club, and I ask for the people to evaluate me who are going to give me genuine, real evaluation. The same thing, you want to make sure whoever's doing the mock negotiation, and sometimes it requires investing in a coach that will actually do that with you in order to really feel it and get the real experience because you don't want to have somebody that's like you just said, oh yeah, that's good, yeah, you did a good job. You wanna make sure that you have somebody that's going to put you through the paces. Yeah, you, you can't really have your neighbor do it. You need somebody that's actually going to put you through the ringer so you get that kind of like stress induction. Exactly, yeah, exactly. How do we find that person? How do you find that person? I'm happy to do that for anybody. I love to put people through the paces with that. (laughs) I'm a a tough negotiator, let me tell you. (laughs) Excellent. So basically, research, do your homework, find someone who's going to be hard on you, and do a couple of practice rounds with them so that when you walk in there, the adrenaline doesn't overwhelm your sense of judgment. Right, because you've already felt like you've experienced it. The body doesn't know what's real or what's imagined. So you're doing an imaginary thing with a real person, but it's not actually the real deal. So what I found when I do that, and then I go and walk in and sit down with somebody, I've already felt like I've done it. So I'm ready to go. And they may not have done that. So they may not be as prepared as I am. And that's to my advantage. Absolutely. Now, let's go back to the relationship building stuff as well. You say building relationships is the most important thing to do in any negotiation. And often, yeah, we're in such a hurry, we overlook this type of thing. 
what kind of relationships are we talking about and how do we sort of go about that? Let's first start off with the types of relationships. How do we know, first of all, if I, if I know I'm gonna be negotiating with somebody, what do I do to start that relationship? Do I start it in the negotiation room or do I reach out beforehand knowing, hey, we're gonna have to meet in a few weeks, few months, and then we're gonna have to hash this out. Do we have coffee? I mean, what does that process look like? I guess it depends on what the negotiation is. Um, for instance, one of my clients is getting ready to renegotiate his contract with a company he's working with. Well, he already knows the company and already has somewhat of a relationship. Leading up to the negotiation, he can do some different things and ask some different questions to see if he can find out maybe what the position would be like so he knows where to come from. And if it's somebody you don't know, and it depends on whether or not you're able to connect with them in advance or not. You may just call and just ask some questions, introduce yourself and say, well, we're going to be having this discussion. I just like to introduce myself and make a connection with you and say, I'm looking forward to sitting down with you. And is uh, there, there uh, anything you'd like to discuss ahead of time or maybe do a fact finding where you can get some further information uh, a lot of times if you're going for a job interview, you're not going to be able to connect with the interviewer in advance, but maybe you can do some research online to see if you can find out something about the person who's interviewing you. If not, you can find out something about the company and see if you can do a little research, what the culture's like, so you have some kind of a feel of what they're like going in. Yeah, to that point, like how much research is enough research or too much research? Like if I'm going to go have a job interview or do a negotiation, I will like check the backstory of every person I might meet, know their history so I can say, hey, I, oh, I heard your dog was sick last week. I hope it's doing okay now. Is that something that, you know, is really like is a little overkill or is that helpful? It depends on the situation. It, it's, it may be overkill. They may get creeped out by that. But what for job interviews, what people like to know is that you know something about the culture or the, the company. Uh, when I retired from the military, I went the first place I went to work for was Raytheon. And I found out something about the culture of Raytheon. So when I talked to the hiring manager who hired me, I could say, well, I see that Raytheon's this kind of culture. And this is what you do. And I am in alignment with this because I do this, this and this kind of thing, just kind of showing how you can align with that company's culture. And they're usually impressed if you've done some kind of research about the company, not just coming in blindly, oh, hey, I want this job. You know, it's uh, more you've done your research and done your homework. Again, does it start in the room or does it make sense for us to, obviously, if we're able to, we want to negotiate with people we already know. Is that correct? That would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But obviously we can't always do that. So we start the relationship then just to be clear in the room as early as we can. Right. If, if you're sitting down in the room for the first time and you haven't had any prior discussion, then yeah, you take some time to just chit chat a little bit like, oh, hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. You know, the, maybe some questions about how long have you been doing this with this company and maybe just to find out something about them. So that, that can take a little bit of that, that guard, that barrier down. Good example of that is um, where I go to church. I'm, I'm a leader of the Women Veterans Fellowship. And I had to go meet with the pastor of the Veterans Fellowship and got a little nervous about that. And was like, what's he going to ask me? I'm a little scared. Didn't know him. Didn't know anything about him. Um, didn't really find anything in advance. Went in there, sat down, and we started having a discussion. And he asked me a couple questions. And I looked around the room and I honed in on a picture of Harley Davidson motorcycle. I've been riding Harleys for 20 years. 
asked him if he had a Harley. He said, yes, I do. We talked about Harleys for about 20 minutes. Then he asked me one other question and sent me on my way. So that he looking around the room and finding something to, of affinity that I had with him caused the barriers to be broken down. And we had a nice little discussion about it. And that kind of smoothed over the whole relationship. And we built the relationship instantly based on that affinity. Excellent. So it starts with small talk, but I'm guessing, and correct me where I'm wrong, it makes way more sense to try to get a deeper relationship if possible, rather than just like, how are the kids? Great. All right, your guard's down. Let's do this. It's it's more like a real conversation. Right. It's, because especially depending on the negotiation, if you're looking to do a contract with them or some type of a long-term situation, you want to find out a little bit more about maybe their values and their desires and their goals and things and them as a person, because you're going to be connected with them for a long time. So this is kind of, if you can't find that information in advance, you want to make sure that you bring that up. And then it also helps to, okay, yeah, I'm interested in that too. Oh, wow. You're from Texas. Me too. Oh, you ride a motorcycle. I do too. You were in the military. You know, those affinity things really paved the way for, oh, okay, you were in the military. I'm in the military. Hmm, I trust you because I know that you and I come from the same kind of a mindset, the same kind of a background. It just unconsciously builds rapport with people. Okay. Now, obviously, the title of your book, Think Like a Negotiator, the subtitle is 50 Ways to Create Win-Win Results by Understanding the Pitfalls to Avoid. What are some of the pitfalls to avoid? Obviously, failing to create a relationship is one of them, but what specifically are we looking at? When you see other people negotiate, what do you notice first that they're doing wrong? Well, I notice a lot of times that people haven't prepared in advance. If they're unprepared for the discussion, if I'm asking questions and they're not able to answer them, or during the discussion, they're not able to make decisions or they don't have the authority or, or whatever, it's kind of like, okay, I know that they're not prepared in advance. And uh, so they haven't prepared. I may have leverage in that situation finding out and listening to what they say, how they say it. You can tell whether or not they have prepared or they haven't prepared. And then what are you listening for to see if they're prepared or not? Well, basically, if they're answering my questions, but that they've got some information, they've done some research about me or my company or what I do. If we're sitting down and we're just discussing, say, a contract for me to come in and do training and I'm asking different questions about the organization and and maybe, um, OK, well, tell me about the personnel you want me to come and train and and when can we do this? And do you have a location for that? And they're kind of, um, uh, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Like they haven't thought any of that out. They're just basically there and like, okay, are we having a discussion? Are we going to have to come back and have another discussion? Or are we going to be able to answer these questions now? You can just tell just by the way people actually, I guess, answer the questions you're asking or carry on the discussion. Okay. And are there ways that you test other people for preparedness when you're negotiating with them? I'll ask some questions like, why is this important to you? I have a whole list of questions in my book about different questions to ask. Why is this important to you? Why is this a fair and reasonable price? Or why is this a fair and reasonable term or condition? Is there any reason we can't move forward with this? What can I do to, what can we do to reach an agreement? What can I do to help you? And just the responses to that is, okay, they haven't thought this through too good. And again, we should repeat some of those questions. One of them I caught was, is there any reason you can't? 
and uh, what is the reason for your position as well? Or do you have doc? Was one of them? Do you have documents to back that up, or did I just make that one up? Oh no, that's another one. What documentation do you have to back up this uh, point you're presenting? Yeah, the best question to get a response from somebody. A lot of times, when people you're offering something to somebody, maybe you're selling something, or you have a program you're offering, or whatever. People sometimes just say no. We say no three times before we say yes a lot of times because we're just so programmed to know. And oftentimes no is just a request for more information. And if you ask somebody, why can't you? Well, I just can't because blah, 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 blah. Because they're just conditioned to go to no. But if you say, is there any reason you can't sign up for my training now? They have to think of the reason and come up with a reason. So it makes them kind of does a pattern interrupt in their brain and makes them have to come up. Okay, what is the reason I can't? I can't just say no to that question. Is there any reason you can't do this? No, no doesn't doesn't compute as the answer to that question. They have to actually present a reason. And if they can't find one, then you realize there's there's a crack there that you can weasel your way into that. Definitely. Yeah. Excellent. Good. So you're starting the negotiation by creating a relationship. Maybe you start with small talk, but you're looking for genuine affinity. And then after that, you're looking for testing for their preparedness, right? Definitely. Okay. And then from there, whenever we get objections to what we want, you start to question it in a way that is more open-ended, I guess you would call it, so that they can't just say, well, no. Right. Just ask questions where you can get a, a definite response. And One negotiation strategy, I always say everything is negotiable when you think like a negotiator. And one negotiation strategy that makes everything negotiable is being willing to walk away as Ah. a negotiation strategy. Right. You have to go in and know what your walk away point is. Okay, if we get to this point with this deal point or this price or whatever this combination is, I can't go below this or I can't go above this. And if we do, I'm done. I know in advance I'm willing to walk away at this point. So you need to predefine when you're going to walk away before you walk in. Right, because sometimes you'll get caught up in the moment, but I always make an agreement with myself. Okay, I'm going to this situation. We're going to sit down and this is my bottom line. I cannot go above this or I cannot go below this. And if we do, I'm walking away. So I've got that agreement with myself so I don't get caught up in the emotion of the moment and agree to something that isn't a good deal. Great. So I remember that being like a golden rule of networking is the guy who's got the power is the guy who's willing to walk out of the room or something like that. Is that an overstatement or is that pretty clear in general? Uh, well, that is that is a powerful thing. One of the other powerful strategies to use is uh, to stop talking at the appropriate time. Expound on that while I stop talking. (laughs) Well, oftentimes when we're negotiating, we're going back and forth and back and forth. We don't shut up at the right time because there's that adage, he or she who speaks next loses or concedes in the negotiation. So if you're going back and forth on points and you put out a point, they put out a point, you put out your final point, Stop talking. Give them time to process. Don't say anything because whoever speaks next usually goes ahead and gives in. Perfect example of that. I was my sister uh, bought a car she couldn't afford and I was negotiating with the finance guy to take it back. I mean, she signed her name on the dotted line and everything drove off with the car. And he and I are going back and forth and kind of getting a little heated. And 
you might as well take this now because you're going to repossess it in a couple months. You can't afford this car or any car you have on the lot. And we're going back and forth and back and forth. And he slams his folder shut and he says, frankly, I'm getting upset. And I said, well, I'm already upset. And I just glared at him and I was quiet and it felt like the air was sucked out of the room. But he tore up the papers and we left. That's the power great. power of silence is, if you can get comfortable with the discomfort of silence, it's a very strong tool in negotiation. Now, back to Aldana Luis Fernandez. Do you think that there was some weakness in his emotional position there? And him getting emotional about it? Because that seems like a really weak position. Like, well, I'm getting upset. Well, why? If you hold all the cards, why are you upset? You just have to wait out the other person. If you don't hold all the cards, or you're somehow you're a little bit weak, then yeah, go ahead and get angry about somebody trying to take a car back. I mean, whatever. I think in that situation that every time he made a comment, I responded with another point that he was backing himself into a corner. And it was a small town, and I was active duty military, and I had a couple leverage points. One, they hadn't put the paperwork in the bank yet because this was Sunday. She went on a Saturday to get the car. And two, it's a small military town, and I know in the back of his head, he probably thought that as a military member, I could go back to the base and say that this was somebody who was taking advantage of military families and get his dealership banned from doing business. I don't know if that was a thought process, but that was surely a leverage point that I had. And I, I don't know. He just, I think, wasn't expecting me to kind of come with all the points that I was firing at him. Because every time he said something, I had something else to come back with. And he started raising his voice and I just followed tonality with him. And then he just blew a gasket and then I just blew back at him and sat there and looked at him until he tore the papers up and we left. What does that mean, followed tonality? Well, so if somebody's tonality is, there's ways you can either go where if somebody's talking in a low tone, you can match that tone and then they start raising their tonality. He was getting upset and he was getting more and more upset and his voice was getting stronger and he was getting louder. And I could have either done one of two things. I could have either just kept at a, lower tone or I could have matched his tonality. So that's what I did. The louder and stronger he got, the louder and stronger I got until he sort of blew, I blew back at him and then just stopped. So how do we know how high to go on the tonality? Because it seems like him getting emotional and then you getting emotional would actually be not a good thing. Like I said, it depends on the situation. He was raising his voice a little, I was raising it back and I felt like he was using it as a bully tactic. Right. And I was not going to be bullied. So I was just showing him I was not going to be bullied. And that's just kind of comes from experience. I mean, I knew that because I'd been had a lot of being in the military as a woman in a male dominated environment. I had a lot of people attempt to bully me. So I knew how to act in that kind of situation and recognized it right away. Okay, because I'm thinking for a lot of times for myself that maybe there's a gender difference here. I don't really know. When somebody's yelling at me, I usually stay super, super calm and I'll just kind of let them do their thing. And if they're really going off the handle, I'll just keep, uh, stop talking and then let them do their thing. And I might even say, are you done? Just like the implication is, is your temper tantrum over with? Can we continue to have this conversation? And I don't do it in a condescending way, but it's kind of like, hey, all right, now that you're vented, let's continue. And I find that that, at least for me in some situations, right, there's always a little asterisk by it, works really well for getting people to kind of get that out of their system, realize it's not a winning strategy, and then come back down to earth. 
Yeah, I like that strategy a lot better. As a matter of fact, I had somebody come and scream at me about my son and his friends were shooting water balloons, and uh, apparently they started shooting at cars. They weren't supposed to be. But um, the neighbor saw it, and he comes over, and he bangs on my door, and he screamed at me for about 15 minutes, and I just kept calm, and I kept saying, I understand. I'll take care of it. I just stayed as calm as calm could be and stood there and stared at him until he finally stormed off because I wasn't going to get into his little temper tantrum with it. But a lot of this comes from experience. I know when to use one thing versus another. I would much rather just stay calm and stare at somebody, like you said, and let them have their little temper tantrum. And, okay, let's continue the discussion now, shall we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just reading one of your blog posts about uh, different types of language to use when you're in a negotiation. And now that you guys are talking about like when you have some kind of conflict in a negotiation, what really is kind of the best language to use to kind of either diffuse it besides silence? Silence is obviously the best. But uh, if you're trying to bring somebody down and get back on the same page, is there like a specific type of language you like to use? Because you don't want to talk down to anybody, but you also want to make sure that you're on your peers. And you don't want to just kind of say, okay, you're being an idiot. Yeah, you don't ever want to be derogatory to someone, but you want to just be direct, maybe firm, but calm. And I did a lot of discussions with different contractors on the phone when I was in the military, and some of them would use bully tactics. And I would say, okay, you're screaming at me, and I'm not going to listen to this. So if you'd like to continue this conversation when you calm down, please call me back. And I would hang up because I just wasn't going to tolerate that. Same thing if you're in face to face with somebody and they're just and like one of the strategies in my book is you can't negotiate with crazy. Right. When somebody's in that crazy mindset and they are just so bent on their emotion and they're just not going to stop. That's another point where you might want to just walk away. I'll, I'll continue this conversation with you once you've calmed down. But if it looks like something where somebody's just getting upset and you can turn the conversation back, like, why don't we take a break and then reconvene or Can we continue this conversation without so much emotion? Or or what can I do to help you to resolve this issue? And then they're they're either going to calm down and come back around or they're not. And you have to decide at some point, we're just going to take a break until the emotion calms down and then reconvene. Right. So you're essentially asking how you can logically solve their emotional issue. Yeah, because they're obviously emotional about something. It's hit a chord with them somehow. And if you can find out what it is, how can I help you? How can I solve this? What is the problem with this issue? Why is this causing you so much stress or anxiety or whatever it's causing? And maybe they'll be able to come and say, oh, well, this is this and this is that. And if I agree to this, this is really going to undercut me and I really can't do this and I'm really tied and connected to this. Another thing is, what is your why? If you can find out why it's so important to somebody, it may help you be able to kind of turn the negotiation, turn the corner and, oh, okay, this is important to you because of it's tied to your family or it's tied to something that you've been working on for a long time. I can respect that. Let's see how we can make this work, shall we? Let's turn it back and uh, see how we can go forward. So kind of empathizing with them, understanding their point of view, it may calm them down. So it sounds like the why actually is very important when you first start a negotiation to know where they're coming from. So you know how to kind of get to your middle ground where you can actually get the negotiation to a point where you're both satisfied with the outcome. That depends. If you're negotiating for a big company, like I was negotiating for the government, nobody really cared 
unfortunately, as a government person, we didn't care what the contractor's why was because we're just buying it. That we had that mindset, like, I don't care what this is. I just want to buy it and get it off my desk. So it kind of depends on if, if it's you personally or, or a small group, small companies working together or small groups of individuals, that's when that question would be effective to find out why this is a, a thing that they're interested in doing to begin with. It might be a good thing to start with to find out why we're, st- why we're here meeting today. Why are we here? Why do we want to do this? Uh, let's have a discussion about that. That could also tie into building relationships. When you ask that question, you find out a little bit more about why they want to go forward with it. And then you share a little bit why you want to go forward with it. You might find out something more than if you didn't ask that question. Okay. So don't negotiate with the government is the first thing that I got. (laughs) 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 Well, like I said, don't negotiate with crazy. Wait, no. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So if, if someone is doing the crazy thing, we literally have to just back off, unplug, offer to come back later. Definitely, because there is no way you're going to get through to somebody who's in that kind of a mindset and with that much emotion, and they're so fueled and so fired up that there's no way they're going to be able to discuss anything rationally. So it's, let's take a break. Let's uh, reconvene when emotions are a little bit cooler. And then when you come back, you can say, okay, we'd like to reconvene and start discussions again, but we first we want to address what happened before and we don't want to go there again. So how can we avoid getting to that point so we can reach an agreement? Excellent. I was uh, reading your blog while we were going. I asked the language question because you had the, uh, the post about try, the words that are sound hard, like try, hope, and want. Oh, right. And those words to me are disempowering because you're either going to do something or you're not. When you want to reach something, I hope I can. I tried. It sets you up for failure, makes it okay to fail. Well, I tried. I hope I can. I wanted to. You're either going to do it or you're not. And you make an affirmative decision to go forward and do it. If you don't, failure is okay. Fail forward to success. But saying, oh, I'm going to try to do it, sets you up to be, okay, if I don't make it, I tried. Somewhere in your mind, in your unconscious, it sets you up to be okay to not make it. So it's just, I think, a defeating kind of language. Right. So if we hear that, we should realize that's probably not going to happen. They just don't want to say no. Right. Oh, well, we'll try it. Now that you've read that blog, think about it. Listen to how many people say those words. It's unconscious, but when you think about it, it's very disempowering because it'll set you up to be, well, I tried. I tried to paint the wall. It didn't work. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It gives them an out, too. It's like, okay, I didn't really want to do this, but I said I tried, and then off they go. Right, exactly. If somebody says that language during a negotiation, well, okay, my thought process on that word means that mm, it's okay if you don't. So are we going to do this or we're not? Let's be definitive about it. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Is there anything that you want to wrap with that we didn't ask you that you think we should have? I think you you guys kind of covered the gamut. Like I said, everything's negotiable. When you think like a negotiator, it's a mindset you have to put on. It's not something that you're born with. You have to actually drill your skills and learn how to be a good negotiator. But you can do that. The more that you train your skills and drill your skills, the better you'll become. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thinklikeanegotiator.com. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Aldana. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great.
Interesting stuff. I was really happy to hear that the relationship aspect of it was the key. We couldn't have planned that better to go along with the Art of Charm, which is probably why the person who introduced her to us thought that would be a great fit for what we're doing here. You hear a lot about like mirroring their body language and vocal tonality, but there's also something to be said for doing the opposite or just using what they're doing as an indicator as to sort of where they are in the process. So I think that was really powerful, and the questions, of course, were powerful as well. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Aldana on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well, and as well as the other resources that she mentioned on the show and her book and everything. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. I post a lot there, stuff that doesn't make it to the show. Our boot camp details for our live training, remember, we're sold out six months in advance, so if you're thinking about it, get in touch now. That's at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, or just go to The Art of Charm and navigate there. Also, the blog's on the website. We've got our amazing articles there, and subscribe in iTunes, review us in iTunes if you want to help us outrank the riffraff, and I'll love you forever. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of The Art of Charm podcast, and of course, for co-hosting. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 